Welcome to Hear Me Out. I'm your host, Celeste Henley. There are only so many ways a pregnancy can end. Right now, across the United States, the right to abort pregnancy is being undermined in some areas and fiercely protected in others. Many worry that people who suffer a miscarriage might get caught in the crossfire. But for those who, under whatever circumstances, carry a pregnancy to term, there's yet another problem. It's really, really expensive to give birth in this country. Our guest today thinks it should actually cost nothing. It certainly should not be the case that only rich people can afford to have kids. That seems very wrong to me. Liz Brunig joins us on Hear Me Out in just a moment. Stay with us. Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture, and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. We're back on Hear Me Out. I'm Celeste Headley. Just a heads up, this episode contains some explicit language. Your baby is born. The job is done. Back in your room, you begin to realize how much you are going to enjoy your baby. It is the beginning of a new era. Have you chosen a name for him? Don't forget to telephone the relatives. Are the announcements ready? Don't forget to get cigars and candy for the office. Ah, well, father will take care of that. Now for a well-earned rest. You're hearing the end of an instructional video on childbirth from 1950, squarely in the midst of the post-war baby boom. Now, aside from the super helpful advice about candy and cigars, one thing you didn't hear mentioned was paying for your time in the hospital. As is the case now, how much you owed the healthcare system varied widely at that time, depending on your location, how complicated your birth was, and so on. Some baby boomers have posted the bills for their own births online recently, and we've seen records of a 1958 birth costing $1,000 and a three-day stay after birth in 1955 that cost a whopping $60. Adjusted for inflation, that would be $10,000 and $670, respectively, in today's money. Now, it probably won't shock you to know that nowadays it's a lot more expensive to have a baby. The Kaiser Family Foundation says the average cost is nearly $15,000 for vaginal birth, more than $26,000 for a cesarean. And if you have complications or multi-day stays, it's not at all uncommon to reach a six-figure bill. One couple got a bill for $877,000 when their triplets were born prematurely. And it costs more to have a baby in the U.S. than any other nation in the world. And it doesn't look like this kind of health care will become more affordable anytime soon. Late last week, a federal judge in Texas ruled that part of the Affordable Care Act, the part concerning preventive care, was unlawful. This decision will be challenged, of course, but if it stands, patients will be forced to pay for many tests and screenings in the future, and costs will go up, not down. Again, if it stands, many components of prenatal care may not be covered, like treatment for preeclampsia or high blood pressure screenings, maternal depression screenings, and gestational diabetes screenings, among a number of others. The end result is simply a bigger price tag for expectant parents, even if they have insurance. At the same time, 
pregnant people are increasingly being told by the political right that the only acceptable outcome of pregnancy is to give birth. Writer and journalist Liz Brunig is our guest today, and she argues that if anti-abortion activists really want to get their way nationwide, we need to make it easier to have a baby in this country. And by easier, she means... I think we should make birth free. I would go for the more expansive version, and I would say that the entire financial scheme that unfolds around having a child needs to be covered by the federal government, right? That going to the hospital, having the procedures, having all the tests, having all the vaccinations that are done when a child is born, um, any incidental health issues that might come along with that, such as stays in the NICU, um, care for the mother at postpartum, all of this should be covered. That seems like it's it's prioritizing people who have children. And if I'm a person who doesn't want to have children or can't have children, that might feel unfair to me. Yeah, well, the the good news is you don't have to have a baby. <laughs> I mean, you you don't have to go through the bullshit of going to a hospital and having a baby. Um, it's like, why don't I get a flu shot? I'm immune to the flu. It's like, well, you've sort of you've already got your reward there. Um, but for everybody else, their flu shot should be covered. Um, I, I mean, it does prioritize infants and their mothers in terms of, um, you know, among all conditions you could wind up in the hospital for, this one would be covered uniquely. But I do think there are some reasons that uh, have to do with, with things other than just, you know, recognizing this as an important contribution to society. For instance, the fact that due to the life cycle nature of income, people have the least money during their childbearing years. That's when their early career, they're just getting out of school, maybe if they've gone to college or they're just getting started in a trade or they're trying to open a small business, whatever the case, when you're in your early to mid 20s, early 30s, that's typically not when you're making the most money you're ever going to make in your life. In fact, it's when people are making the least money they're going to make in the course of their career. They make more money at the end of their career. So it's unfortunate that they end up trying to start families and have children at a time uh, where they're underpaid relative to where they will be later on in life. So this would just smooth out that uh, discrepancy a little bit by covering one of the major cost sources. When you're talking about people who are unprepared to pay for the costs associated with having a baby, doesn't that also mean they're not prepared to pay for the cost of a child? I mean, a baby is expensive, but a child is expensive. Once you get that baby home from the hospital, I mean, first of all, they're going to have to continue to get shots and, and health care for a very long time. But there's a lot of other equipment and, and supplies that you need to raise a kid. Yeah, I mean, on the one hand, having a couple of kids, I mean, I, I certainly agree that they can be very expensive. They don't have to be. The first time I had a kid, I went and bought the bassinet and did all that stuff. And the kids, they don't use it. They don't like it. Um, the, the, the really nice equipment just ends up getting puked on. Um, the second time I had a kid, we just used old stuff we had, and I think we bought a double stroller off Craigslist. Um, and, uh, you know, I would recommend doing it that way every time. But there are programs that do exist for extremely low-income families. Um, CHIP, for instance, would be probably the, the children's health insurance program you would set up for a child who had a very low-income mom, dad. Um, and, you know, there are Unfortunately, a lot of them are tax credit programs, welfare programs that uh, support poor families. I personally believe there should be more. I mean, I'm an all-around advocate for a stronger, especially family-oriented welfare state. Other countries have, you know, all of the welfare uh, categories that we have. They have care for disabled people. They have some resources for um, uh, older people, and uh, they have care for unemployed people. We have 
all of those elements of a welfare state, the one element that we really lack is care for families. And we just have to recognize that children, kind of like the elderly or the disabled or the unemployed, are non-workers, that they cost money, but they don't bring in money. And so, you know, balancing that out for the family by offering some welfare uh, just makes it easier. It smooths that transition into, into having a family and raising a family, regardless of where you are on the income ladder. I believe it, sure, it certainly should not be the case that only rich people can afford to have kids. That seems very wrong to me. I mean, I'm going to push back on this just a little yeah. bit because we have research on how much it costs to raise a kid. I mean, you've got the Brookings Institution. They say it's somewhere around 17000 a year. The Consumer Expenditures Survey, but that was back in 2015, said it costs about 13000 Granted, these are averages, but let's imagine that we're still talking about thousands of dollars per year. So if we pay for somebody's childbirth, and that then means that more people are able to have kids, are we not possibly getting more kids who are born into low-income families? Yeah, I mean, you know, for me, I think if we're, we're sort of looking at the, you know, we're the United States of America, and we're looking at our balance sheet, and we're saying to ourselves, man, we just can't let these poor people have kids. That's a real crisis uh, for our country, right? That means that something has gone terribly wrong because we're an incredibly rich country. If we can send billions of dollars to Ukraine uh, to fight a proxy war with Russia, it seems to me uh, that we can pay this massive cost up front for parents to bring children into the world. So one thing I would say about the ongoing costs of raising a child, and not that they're insignificant, is that they're paid out, you know, usually monthly or bi-monthly as to where childbirth is a big lump sum cost right up front. That's a hospital stay sometimes for a couple of days. If the baby needs time in the NICU, for example, that's a huge lump sum upfront cost. So these are different on low-income families uh, than, you know, sort of ongoing costs that are just a little bit out of a paycheck that you can maybe work into a budget. And I think, you know, that's one reason to kind of distinguish making birth free from a situation where you're essentially providing someone with a child for which there's no endowment. You know, it's rather the case probably that lots of low-income families do have you know, sources of income, they're just low income. Um, and, and I agree that they should be higher. I mean, I think that's something that, you know, this kind of program could open the door to because I think it would be a successful program. I think it would be something people liked. It would simplify having children, right? It's very complicated right now. You get into the hospital, there's the insurance paperwork and then all the follow-up. Um, this would simplify that process quite a bit. Um, and And ultimately, I think, um, it would come to be, you know, kind of a popular program and maybe the thin end of the wedge for better welfare altogether. Let's dig into what you just said, because it sounds to me like this would be difficult to get conservatives to go along with because you're describing it as sort of a, a toe in the door towards expanded socialist programs in the United States. Is that accurate? Yeah, it seems like they would hate it, but you know, there there are some conservatives who are coming around to it. JD Vance signaled support for it, that senator, and I think the Americans United for Life, the oldest pro-life organization, has announced support for making birth free. Uh so of the Democrats for Life of America, DFLA. Um this is another big pro-life organization. They've come out behind it. A lot of 
big time conservative bankers have come out behind it as well. Um, because I think they realize that's sort of the the actual challenge to following through on those pro-life ideas they say they hold. You know, if you really believe it, you sort of have to put your money where your mouth is. So, you know, my belief has always been that a better welfare state would give people, a, you know, a genuine opportunity to start a family if they want one. And it certainly won't get in their way if they don't want one. My approach to this issue has never been banning anything or trying to institute prohibitions. For one, I just don't think they work. If you look at what happened after Roe versus Wade was overturned, uh, abortion referenda went on the ballots in the midterms. Everywhere they were on the ballot, they won. You know, it, it looks like this big heroic moment that was, uh, you know, exciting to conservative pro-lifers just didn't really amount to much in, in terms of actual achievement of their ends. Um, but the fact still remains that there are lots of people who can't afford to go to the hospital and have a baby and that it's financially ruinous for them. And so I think being faced with that reality in the aftermath of what they treated like a major victory will hopefully be some kind of wake up call. And, you know, this is the one issue where they're really, really over a barrel on welfare spending because it's human life. If it's that important to you. You, you have to put your money where your mouth is. There has to be money that attaches to that care. Liz and I will go even deeper on whether free childbirth is socialism right after this break. This is Hear Me Out. Stay with us. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Mom deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts start by saving 33 with prime on all body care and candles then get a 15 stem bunch of tulips for just 9.99 each with prime round out mom's menu with festive rosé irresistible berry chantilly cake and more special treats come celebrate mother's day at whole foods market and we're back on Hear Me Out. I'm Celeste Headley, and we're in the middle of a conversation with Liz Brunig. Let's get back to it. It sounds like you're saying you think it should cost nothing at all, even the, the prenatal vitamins, the packet diapers you take home with you from the hospital, all that should be no cost. I don't even think your prenatal care should cost you anything. I think all the prenatal visits, all of the ultrasounds, all of the testing that is recommended in utero, all of that should be covered. So should the birth. Um, everything with respect to the development of the child and the mother and child's health postpartum, all of that should be covered, yes. So why make this a priority when we have a healthcare system that's not particularly functioning well anyway? Why focus on making birth free? Well, most people will have children, you know, so this is a financial burden that will fall on most people, the majority. And so from that standpoint alone, it's important to have it available, you know, simply because it, it's affecting a really large portion of the population. Another reason is that the infants themselves are totally helpless, right? They're, they're people being born in our country, uh, but they themselves have no means by which to advocate for their own health care or secure it. 
Uh, so it's sort of up to the polis uh, to make sure that they are seen to by doctors and that they're cared for. That's kind of all of our responsibility as a nation because they're not people who can advocate on their own behalf. Um, and also because, you know, it's good. It's good to bring children into the country. We're going to need them. We need them to to do production while we're old. When I'm old, I will need people to be working in the economy in order to uh, receive the products that I will need to take care of myself because I will no longer be working. So you're making the argument that more babies born is a public good. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I tend to think, you know, we we want to perpetuate our society and we want our old people to be taken care of. Population drop-offs, you know, aren't aren't a great thing. You look at what's happening in Japan with, you know, quite a lot of elderly people without anyone to take care of them, um, just sort of uh, dying by themselves. And that, that's, that's not ideal, I think. I think we all want a, a, a society that's going to continue on sort of in rude health. And for that to happen, I think people need to feel comfortable, able, um, actually capable of having children. So my job here is take some potentially explosive ideas, demonstrate that we could talk about them in a civil way, which we're doing so far. But let me put to you a, a couple arguments on the other side, and let me know if any of these seem reasonable to you. Okay. Um, so, for example, you know, we have seen again and again how difficult it is to have a program like this that doesn't become a, a source of discrimination when it's made national, when it's made federal. Legislators will put earmarks on things, they will add regulations, they will suddenly say that you can have your baby for free, but it has to be with these particular doctors. They'll attach it to anti-abortion legislation, say we'll make it free, but as long as maybe you've never had an abortion or there's no abortion available. So don't you always also run the risk of having legislators step in on decisions like whether or not to circumcise your boys, whether you get drugs while you're in labor? Yeah, so I would say there's a good and a bad way to write this legislation. And, you know, the bad way would permit states in their institution of the law to attach it to all kinds of strange things. Um, but there's also a good way to write the legislation. And there there are ways to write this bill. You know, if there's going to be a bill, right now there's only a white paper. Um, but if there is going to be a bill, I think it should be very careful to skirt exactly those areas of possible exploitation. Now, conservative states may just reject it. I mean, they some of them rejected Medicaid expansion when that happened under Obamacare. But, uh, you know, that doesn't mean that the program itself is flawed. That's just conservative governments trying to sabotage their people, which they do repeatedly. Um, and there's, there's not a whole lot that can necessarily be done about that, just for sort of basic federalism reasons. But in the states where it could be, you know, implemented, and in hell, maybe it would be federally implemented with little struggle. I think it could be extremely helpful. Um, but it's true, there's no accounting for what right-wingers may or may not do. Um, I think at worst, they would just sort of uh, refuse to institute it in their state, like a Medicaid expansion. But a lot of them ended up going with the Medicaid expansions in the end. Look, on both sides of the aisle, the, what people say they believe personally rarely ends up being the law of the land. And so we have all of these anti-abortion laws and restrictions and activists 
that once a baby is born don't seem to have any compunction whatsoever about letting those kids go to schools that are seriously underfunded, live in places where there are environmental poisons, you know, not have the kind of health care that they need, not have the kind of support for their parents that they need. And on the Democrat side, there's plenty of really valid arguments saying that Democrats don't support or defend women and children the way that they should either. You know, you'll get tax credits, but tax credits only you're help you taxes, yeah. if you're making enough money to owe taxes. Yeah. So this seems tough. You know, it's aiming high. Um, and I think you have to, you know, there are a lot of reasons to propose legislation. One of them and the most obvious and the most important is that it may pass and it may change the lives of a lot of people. But it's important to also propose legislation because it sets a bar. And it sets a target by creating or pointing to a vision of what a society should be like. Um, and I think in our society, uh, having children, um, going to the hospital, shouldn't, it shouldn't ruin you financially. That shouldn't come out of your pocketbook. Uh, I think it's something that we're definitely rich enough to cover. And it's something that shouldn't um, cause people to hesitate. Um, when I think about the possibility of poor families you know, deciding not to have children because of those upfront costs. I just think that's not just. That's forcing them into a decision they don't want to make because of poverty. Um, and, you know, the possibility of having a free birth would not make the decision for them, but it would be open to them. And so at least it would be a real choice. Also, it's one thing when it costs, you know, four or $5,000 to have a baby that's healthy. I feel like there are going to be some taxpayers who balk when they end up in the NICU for a very long time. They end up on a on a on a breather for a very long time. Maybe they don't make it. That kind of childcare can get up into the six figures or or above. Those taxpayers should get on their knees and thank God it's not them. Which is very kind. Do you think most people are kind that way? <laughs> I mean, People pay taxes that support their elementary schools, whether they have kids in school or not, because it's not really about them. Though may they complain. <laughs> um, and, <laughs> and when they complain, I, I tend to think, like, stop being such a little whiny crybaby. Um, we live in a society. This isn't about you. It's uh, not your money if it's taxed. Look at the code, right? That it never belonged to you. That's taxed money. The same civil institutions, the same legal institutions that create private property and tell you what money is yours also tell you what money is taxed, right? So to the degree that it's yours, the taxed money is not. Um, so I, I, you know, those people I have a very hard time identifying with, and I guess my overarching attitude towards them is just sort of like get with the program and snap out of it. If you're being jealous of how your money is being spent because it's treating a dying baby, you should thank God it's not you going through that and that it's another family who's struggling through one of the hardest possible things. And you should hope that, quote unquote, your money is making a difference and be grateful that it is. We're going to take another break. We'll be back in just a moment with Liz Brunig talking about the costs of childbirth and whether the federal government should pay for them. Stay with us. We're back. Thank you so much for joining us again. We have Liz Brunig with us, and we're going to take one more stab at this opinion of free birth. So, okay, 
One of the things that I, I, I read a bunch of other, not just your piece on making childbirth free, but uh, some other opinions, some of them came from deeply religious people. I found it interesting that many of them pointed to programs in European mm -hmm. countries, for example, that cover these costs. But many of those European countries, the Scandinavian countries in particular, are social. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, they have so much social support. Um, I feel like in many ways that's an unfair comparison to point to those European countries. Right. I mean, they do have uh, a lot more overall support for families. I also support a child allowance. I've written about that since, I think, 2014. Um, which would just be a... What's a child allowance? Yeah, a child allowance, which would be a, a standard family benefit, just a stipend paid per child to a family. Right now we have child tax credits, but again, it's not helpful if you don't pay taxes. So you could also call that a fully refundable child tax credit if you wanted to, but it would amount to the same thing, just a cash stipend paid to families per children to cover exactly those costs. And those those do exist in other countries. I know you told everybody to stop blubbering like a dare I say baby, but you know, you're going to run into people who say, why can't I have, just because I don't have children, I don't get an allowance? Well, yeah, I mean, you're, you're not paying out the ass for a kid, so you don't get money to pay out the ass for a kid. <laughs> but the good news is you don't have to pay out the ass for a kid. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> that, that's, that's, I think, how I'd answer that. We're laughing about this, but, but, you know, another issue that I think is, and I realize you've touched on this issue before, but I cannot get past how difficult this is going to be. I mean, it's hard to convince people. It is. It is hard. And I, I mean, I, I certainly don't think this is a layup. Like, it, you know, slam dunk, we'll pass it right through Congress. Nobody will complain about it. Um, even with child tax credits, conservatives complain um, and say, this is just encouraging the poor people. We don't want to have kids to have more kids, et cetera. And I'm like, yeah, exactly. Exactly what well, it's Well, that doing. gets a little close to eugenics for me. That yeah, makes my yeah, skin exactly. just a little. Yeah. And so, um, you know, I, I see those concerns as being sort of perennial concerns that Republicans express about the welfare state. And I have no doubt that the more fiscally conservative wing of the Republican Party will voice that exact same concern about this policy. Um, but if there's just enough uh, genuine compassion or honest care uh, about the most vulnerable people in society inside the right-wing contingency somewhere, somewhere, um, then there's the potential for, for a bipartisan uh, approach to this. Because I don't think it would be too hard to get somebody like Bernie Sanders to say that certainly this enormous lump sum cost should be covered. Um, and so, you know, in that case, I can see it at least making a big moral difference on Capitol Hill. I mean, it, it expands the window of the possible, even if that's all it does, although I hope it becomes a policy. Is there an argument on the other side that you have encountered that actually, although you didn't agree with it, it made sense to you? Well, I, I always say when people are like, no, birth shouldn't be free. I'm like, do you like my birth should cost $100,000 plan? And they're like, no, I don't like that one either. And I'm like, what about my birth should cost a million dollars plan? No, they don't like that one either. Okay, so how much should it cost? <laughs> and people have a very hard time answering that question um, because it just seems to be, you know, this weird, pure affirmation of the status quo. Um, and, and so I guess the best argument I've seen against is, you know, I mean, I guess people make population arguments. I don't know. I don't feel like we are overpopulated. Um, 
So, you know, I kind of... World or the United States? I mean, uh, either. I kind of reject the Malthusian take here. I think, you know, we're, our resources are misallocated. It's not that there are too many people. It's that too few people hold too many resources. They should be distributed more equitably, the resources. Um, but I can see that looking to people like there's a squeeze on population when really there's just a squeeze on resources created by a very tiny number of people. Um, but, you know, I, I, I understand people have concerns about children and climate change and sort of adding fuel to the fire, etc. But, um, you know, I, I still think, once again, the majority of people will go on to have children. This would be extremely beneficial to them. It's not that much money and it wouldn't be that big of a heavy administrative lift. Um, so I, I think the pros outweigh the cons because these people need something and we have it. You know, and it's it's not being allocated to them. And and there's absolutely no reason that, you know, one person should be able to decide to have a kid and, and just trust that the financial resources are there and that their insurance will cover a, a fairly uncomplicated and painless birth and that other people have to think about how they're going to make ends meet and whether they can afford to go to a hospital or if they just need to have the baby at home or some less ideal uh, situation like that. Look. I don't want people to have to make those kinds of choices. I want everyone to be able to get equal care. Um, and that's because... Do we have it, though? I mean, I mean, we're recording this at a time where there's this massive argument over whether or not we should lift the debt ceiling. Anytime we get to the budget, anytime we discuss universal health care, there are credible economists who say we can't afford that. Yeah, I mean, they do be saying that. Um, but, I, you know, I, I tend to think... What we can and can't afford is a, is a matter of um, prioritizing in our budget, right? So we, we might not be able to afford doing something like this with our current spending priorities as they are, but we might revisit the military's budget and see if there's anything that can be put aside for America's citizens and civilians because they have enormous needs <laughs> that could be could be quite easily addressed by the huge amount of money that we instead spend on defense. Um, so that would be one recommendation of mine is to maybe look at the priorities in our budget uh, and not think, oh, well, it's, you know, zero sum and we've already zeroed it out. So too bad. And I think that once you start getting into the idea of let's cut the military budget so that we can give people free birth, that's when you're going to start getting into name calling. I mean, that's just my prediction that that's where it would become rancorous. Yeah, but I mean, that's also when like rainbows and rose petals start falling on your side of the argument because you're saying, I don't <laughs> want wars. I don't want deaths. I just want people to be able to live good lives. And that's the truth. That's how you know you're on the side of the angels. Here's the way I put it. People who don't have any money want the same things you want right? Everybody basically wants the same stuff in life. Everybody wants to live a good, fulfilled life. For the majority of people, they, they appear to want kids. That's what polls tell us. That's what the numbers tell us in terms of revealed preferences. They should be able to have that. They should be able to be fulfilled in that. And it doesn't matter if they need help to achieve that. If they need help to achieve that, then they should get help to achieve that. Because ultimately, that's what we're trying to go for is equality and uh, peace and solidarity in society. You know, to be honest, I hadn't given this issue a lot of thought before talking with Liz. I had insurance when my son was born, and I only paid a few thousand dollars in deductibles and co-pays, and that seemed normal. But the U.S. is the most expensive place on the planet to have a child. 
It costs less than $2,000 to have a baby in Spain, meaning I could buy a first-class ticket to Barcelona, deliver a child and stay for a few days in a four-star hotel, and it would still cost me less than giving birth in DC. Giving birth might be sending a lot of folks into bankruptcy too, and new parents are more likely than average to be unemployed and uninsured, even by Medicaid. So yeah, now that I think about it, it really seems like we cannot have it both ways. If you want to force people to give birth when they're pregnant, you really can't also force them into poverty because of it and then expect them to have the resources to raise a child, right? But, you know, what do you think? Have you thought about this? We'd love to hear your thoughts on social media. You can find Slate on Twitter, at Slate, and me, at Celeste Headley. Thanks once again to Liz Brunig for joining us. Hear Me Out is a podcast from Slate. The show is produced by Maura Curry. Ben Richmond is the Senior Director of Podcast Operations, and Alicia Montgomery is VP of Slate Audio. I'm your host, Celeste Headley. Until next time, speak your mind, but keep it open. Listener.